Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay, one of the producers. Our theme this week is the politics of expertise, and I'm not sure I can think of a more politicized area of expertise than drugs and drug policy. So today we're going to play you an episode of Darts and Letters' predecessor, Cited. This is called The Heroin Clinic, and it's about the first clinic in North America to provide clean, medical-grade heroin to users. The Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver. We're doing these themes each week to introduce you to our back catalogue before we launch our new season on September 18th, so if you're enjoying listening to Darts and Letters on the New Books Network, go find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe or follow. This episode of Cited was first broadcast in 2017, and things have definitely changed since then. The overdose crisis went into overdrive during the pandemic, and even now 2022 is set to at least equal, maybe overtake, the number of overdose deaths that happened last year. Governments have been forced to respond, and now from January 2023, small amounts of some hard drugs will be decriminalised across BC. There are also now three more clinics providing injectable medical heroin in Vancouver. So the fight is still ongoing, but as long as drug policy is politicised and the cops get their say, then it will remain ongoing. It was after listening to law enforcement that the federal government forced BC to lower the limits of the hard drugs that will be able to be carried legally from 4.5 grams to 2.5. And that means this episode is still important. So here's the heroin clinic, with graphic descriptions of injection and overdose from the start. I'm Gordon Caddick, and this is Cited. There are two public health crises happening right now. COVID-19, of course, but it's overshadowing another, one that's been raging for decades. I'm talking about the opioid epidemic. Since 1999, more than 750,000 Americans have died of drug overdose. 72,000 of those were last year. In British Columbia, where today's story is set, overdose deaths have even dwarfed COVID-19 deaths. COVID-19 is making the overdose crisis worse because COVID is making users more likely to use alone. And with a toxic drug supply laced with fentanyl, that can be fatal. The pandemic is also causing disruptions to drug access and to the healthcare centers that users need. So we are seeing record number of overdose deaths all across North America. But if you're a longtime sighted listener, you know there is a solution. So this week, we're replaying one of the best episodes from our archives. It's called The Heroin Clinic. It was originally broadcast March 9th, 2017. It begins in Vancouver's downtown Eastside neighborhood. Sighted producer Sam Fenn is in an empty parking lot standing next to a mobile trailer. This is a pop-up overdose prevention site. Down 529, crack cocaine at 530. A staff member is reading off of her clipboard. She says that people check in with her when they arrive at the trailer, and then she writes down the time and the drug that they're using. 
down means heroin and rock means crack. Five fifty four, crack six six, crack six twenty, down six thirty, down six thirty, rock six thirty six, rock six fifty, down six fifty, rock six fifty. I smoke my my heroin with my rock, so it kind of like keeps it balanced. This is Bernadette. She's a thin First Nations woman with no teeth. And Bernadette says she comes to this trailer in case she overdoses. Dealers in Vancouver have been selling drugs laced with fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opiate. And nobody really knows what's in their drugs anymore. So um, I've heard rumors about being it in the rock, right? So I'm not sure, right? So have you guys heard of that? No? You haven't yet? No? Bernadette sits at a steel table inside the trailer. She pulls out a compact mirror and a syringe, and she injects into the jugular vein in her neck. Mm. There you go. <laughs> Sweet and simple. Okay. Now, okay, I know it's not that low right now. Okay. Yeah, I'm high right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're unfair there, okay? A middle-aged guy named Doyle sits on a fold-out chair. His head is hung low. A staff member named Dakota looks over at him. And then... Doyle isn't breathing. He's turning blue. Another staff member jams a needle full of a drug called Narcan into his leg, right through his jeans. Narcan can reverse an overdose. Oxygen's at 59. Okay, do you know how to hook? Get a proper seal? Yeah. You gotta take some deep breaths for me, buddy. You're having an overdose, okay? Mr. Cody, here, we got you. 65, 68. Big breath, Doyle. Big breath. Keep breathing. Big breath, Doyle. Come on, buddy. 68, 74, 76, 79, 80. <laughs> Two, eight, four. Yeah, he's coming back up. Yeah, just keep breathing nice and gentle, okay? Doyle starts moving around again. He says he's okay. He's breathing on his own now. Woo! Where have you, Doyle? Where have you And then life goes on at the site, just like it never happened. In 2016, nearly a thousand people died of drug overdoses in British Columbia. Over half were linked to fentanyl. At one point, the coroner's service admitted that Vancouver's morgues were, quote, frequently full, so they had to start storing bodies in local funeral homes. This isn't just a Vancouver problem. There have been overdose spikes in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Ohio, Rhode Island, West Virginia, all linked to fentanyl. But there's one place in North America where drug users legally avoid this game of Russian roulette. It's here, in Vancouver, just two blocks from where Doyle overdosed. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. We're outside an unremarkable-looking concrete building, right next to a country music bar. This used to be a bank. Now it's Crosstown Clinic. A nurse sits behind a thick glass window, looking into a room with stainless steel tables along the walls. One by one, eight patients approach the glass. They mutter to the nurse through a baby monitor. Hi. Birthday? 7th, January 15th. 
A tall guy with a gaunt face and a baseball cap takes his turn at the front of the line. This is Kevin Thompson. The nurse passes Kevin a needle through the slot in the glass, just like it's a pack of cigarettes at a gas station. What does it say on there? What's that, like your dose? Yeah, it tells you your dose, the amount of heroin they're giving me. The nurses call it by its scientific name, diacetylmorphine. But yeah, it's heroin. Kevin takes his syringe and walks away from the window. He leans against one of the stainless steel tables, and he pulls his jeans and boxers down a couple of inches. And then I just poke it in my butt, and I just go right in, yeah. Kevin's on the highest possible dose. He says if he shoots up that much into a vein, he'll go through the roof. So he does it in a muscle. Can I get another 7 Yeah. Takes a while because there's so much. That's how I do it. You gotta be a member to be in here. <laughs> I love this place. What for this place, it would probably be dead. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Kevin goes to Crosstown three times a day, every day. The heroin is produced by a small Swiss pharmaceutical company. It's prescribed by a doctor and administered by a nurse. It's paid for by the Canadian taxpayer. Kevin's part of a very select group, the only 91 people in all of North America who get prescription heroin. Here's how this happened. Back in 2005, before there even was a Crosstown Clinic, Kevin is homeless. He's living in Vancouver in the area known as the Downtown East Side. It's one of North America's largest open-air drug markets. Ended up being homeless. Uh, you'd fall asleep on this street before. If you fell asleep, you know, nodded off, you were done. <laughs> Your pant pockets were cut out, and people, I mean, that's how bad it is. Your shoes are off your feet, your jacket, and I don't care if it's rain, wind, or snow, <laughs> you were robbed. <laughs> Kevin frequently wakes up dope sick. It feels like a horrible fever. His body aches, his muscles are tight, and the only way to make the pain stop is to go get more heroin. But to do that, Kevin needs money. So he steals things, and he has one simple philosophy— don't be sneaky. Walk in the store and just take it, right? It's, uh, you know, the bigger the thing, the least obvious. I took in two TVs and two skill saws and put them on, stack them. And, and then an employee come running out the other door and open the door for me and take it, to, right? No one's going to expect somebody with the balls to do that. Well, really, yeah, they just assume they pay for it, right? <laughs> and this is pretty much Kevin's life. Wake up dope sick, steal something, buy heroin, hide from the cops. Until one day, a guy walks up to him and says, I'm recruiting for a clinical trial. We're going to give out free heroin. Do you want to sign up? And so what do you what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was set up first. <laughs> go, well, that's just the way they can uh, keep eye on us, right? What's going on here? trying to get us corralled or down into all of us in one little section and then just going to arrest us all or, you know, you never know. Um, uh, it was called Naomi. 
North American Opioid Medication Initiative. This is Martin Schechter. He's a professor with the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Martin says that since the late 1990s, he's wanted to know the answer to one question. What do you do with someone with uh, heroin addiction or opioid addiction who has tried the therapies that we have available and they haven't been successful, those therapies? So, for example, methadone. Methadone is the standard treatment for heroin addiction, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. And when somebody has tried it twice, three times, four times, and they keep failing, what do you do? Should we try another attempt of methadone, which was the only thing we could offer, or should we try an alternative like heroin? At, at that time, so it's... Um the very it's the early 2000s um late 90s by the way this is our producer alexander kim how crazy did the idea of giving heroin to people who are addicted to heroin sound it was um yes people very early were incredulous at the idea what was the argument you were you would make to them well i would make the argument uh, what do you have to offer these people are currently um, injecting heroin in alleyways, uh, facing overdose and risk of disease and causing all kinds of problems for the public. Um, Why wouldn't you want them to be getting the heroin from a doctor to bring them in off the street and in contact with the healthcare system? And so Martin decides to start an experiment. It's the first of its kind in North America, a randomized control trial to see what happens when you give heroin to heroin users. There were a million hurdles, each one of which could have been a deal breaker. Martin secures an $8 million grant. He holds meetings with neighborhood groups. He gets ethics board approval. He applies for a permit from City Hall. He asks the United Nations for special permission to import heroin from Switzerland. And at the government's request, he makes his staff go through hostage training. They were very afraid this heroin would escape into the community. So we had armored car deliveries, and we had maglock panic buttons and alarms, and uh, we actually had it in a bank, and we used the vault that was still there. Ironically, the amount of, of, of drugs we had on site was probably less than your average pharmacy. So my name is Eugenia Oviedo-Yuques. I was working in Spain in another clinical trial testing uh, injectable uh, pharmaceutical grade heroin, and and I joined uh, the team of Martin Schechter. Eugenia Oviedo-Yuques is an associate professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Treatment with injectables have a very small but very important role in the addiction treatment system. But this is a statement. This is a statement on how do you want to treat your most vulnerable individuals that are right now injecting in the street and putting their life at risk. Martin and Eugenia recruit 192 people from the downtown east side. These are people they call highly entrenched drug users. They've all used heroin for years, some for decades, and they've repeatedly failed conventional treatments. The three-year Naomi trial begins at Crosstown Clinic in March of 2005. Each participant will be on the trial for 15 months, and they're split up into two groups, a methadone group and a heroin group. 
Can you remember the first time that you actually like walked into the clinic and got heroin that taxpayers paid for? Yeah, it was great. Cause you're thinking, hmm, oh, I can take any amount of heroin they're gonna give me, I'm gonna take it. They sit there and say, look, don't worry about the dope. We've got more than you can do. It's all pharmaceutically done, so there's no infections. You're in a sterile area. I don't have to go rob or steal or boom. All I have to do is wake up in time. (laughs) Kevin's life changes immediately. He doesn't have to hustle to get drugs anymore. So he has a lot of extra time, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Started going for walks, uh, you know, Seeing stuff, realizing, hey, you know what, I haven't been, I live on the ocean a block away, and I hadn't even been down to the ocean, basically, and paid attention to it in the 20 years I've been here, 25 years. If you've been struggling every day to get your fix, up to three or four times a day, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you don't need to do that at all, that's a dramatic change. This is Scott McDonald, the lead doctor at Crosstown Clinic. He's the guy that actually writes the heroin prescriptions. And Dr. McDonald says he sees the participants improve really quickly. There are sex workers who stop going on dates, drug dealers who stop working the corners. I mean, it can be dramatic. I mean, I remember one patient who was uh, probably had not showered in months and was living in a box under some steps in the downtown east side. And uh, within within a week... Reconnected with his family, was living with his uncle, and uh, was showered and clean. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty quick. What did you say to him next time you, you saw him? I didn't say anything. He said, "Hey, doc, things are going better." And I said, "I'm glad to hear it." <laughs> and the results were awesome. This is Have Diane Tobin, another Naomi participant. Oh, yeah, Diane is also the leader of a drug user activist group. Their crime rate went down, their hospitalizations went down, their uh, overdoses went down, and they were starting to think about a future. Uh, Have housing, had a girlfriend, had a job, uh, wasn't using street dope, haven't been arrested, no contact with the police, they don't mess with me no more. Uh, Yeah, it was great. The participants are only legally cleared to receive the heroin for 15 months. But the early results look good. And so Martin and Ohenia and all of the participants, they're hopeful. They think that this tiny study might become something much bigger, a fully funded prescription heroin program, something that drug users across the country can access. Well, that's what we all hope when we do research. You show that it's effective, you show that it's cost-effective, and it's going to be considered to be implemented. You know, I'm a medical anthropologist, and I always tell my students that medicine is much more than science. Dan Small is an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia. He's traveled throughout Europe to research other heroin trials, and he says that all the randomized control trials have shown good results. But in many cases... It never leaves the randomized control realm. It never gets its medical exemption because certain controversial things like supervised injection facilities and heroin-assisted therapy stay forever in a kind of a liminal zone of the temporary 
exemption provided to them. And this is largely what's happened in the wider world. It's politically easier to start controversial treatments in the context of a study. But studies end. And when you've got someone in a study who's doing well, what do you do next? And so this is really one of the conundrums in research of this type is how do you get a randomized control study around heroin from the peer-reviewed research realm and into medical practice. This is the final mile. Dan decides to write a paper about the politics and the ethics of Naomi. He meets with Martin and he tells him, if you want to keep Crosstown open after Naomi ends, you're going to have to fight for it. And that researcher looked at me and said, that's not my job. My job is to essentially lay the data at the feet of policymakers, and I'm a scientist. I was quite taken aback when I heard that from him, and I was disappointed. I don't want to be hard on Martin Schechter, um, because he was a you know, first-rate researcher, um, but the idea, hypothetically, is that when the science speaks, then presumably the policymakers will listen, the skies will open, and they will allow this to be a medical project. But that's not what happens. Martin thought this was, uh, you know, this was a tea party and we were eating cucumber sandwiches with the crust cut off, but it wasn't. It was an all-out um, metaphoric ballroom brawl. All right, Wendy, thanks very much. The latest report on what's happening in Quebec. Well, we can tell you we have seen enough. We've been checking the numbers, checking the figures. and our The political brawl begins in January 2006. Stephen Harper, the leader of the federal Conservative Party, wins the election and becomes Canada's 22nd prime minister. Harper ran on a law and order platform and promised to, quote, not use taxpayer money to fund drug use. So let's listen in. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. We will reform our justice system to make it stronger and to ensure we turn back the growing plague of guns, gangs, and drugs in our cities and communities. We did as much as I think we could have to convince um, decision makers that the the clinic should continue. Martin and his team take meetings with the local health authority. They send letters to the government. They defend their work in the press, and they apply for compassionate access to heroin. All of these attempts fall flat. The participants will have to transition to methadone, a treatment that they've all failed multiple times. Oh, I was panicked. It was horrible. And everybody there just felt so discouraged, so lost. They finally had a way to, they were doing well. They were gaining weight. Their health was good. They weren't stealing. And all of a sudden, threw us right out in the cold, basically. Three months is up, winged you down. Here's your last day. See you later. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> Find fend for yourself again. That's basically what they did to us. Well, for many, it meant returning to the street, returning to illicit 
opioid use and death. Many of my patients died. How many? I can count at least 15. It was just bang, 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 dying, and, and it was all because of what happened with Naomi dropping us. We can't confirm exactly how many Naomi participants died. No one really knows. The researchers simply lost track of a number of them after the study, but they say they have no reason to doubt Scott McDonald's number. Things are going a lot better for the researchers. When all the data is in, they have some exciting results. The heroin group did significantly better than the methadone group. They were more likely to stay in treatment and less likely to turn to street drugs. Martin gets an International Drug Policy Award, and Ohenia presents their findings in the most cited medical journal in the world. I, we used to say, I, I told Martin, there is a saying in Spanish, yes, uh, la cirugía ha sido un éxito, pero el paciente está muerto. The surgery has been a success, but the patient is dead. That's how I felt. Uh, there was no joy of publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was no joy at all. But there's one obscure finding in Naomi that offers the researchers hope. In the Naomi trial, of the people um, receiving injectable medication, most of them were getting heroin, diacetyl morphine, but a number of them, 25 of them, were receiving hydromorphone, the drug name that you commonly hear is Dilaudid. Dilaudid is chemically similar to heroin, but it doesn't have the same kind of bad brand association. It's actually legal in Canada. It's already used as a painkiller. Martin put a small group of the Naomi participants on Dilaudid because he wanted to see if drug users could tell the difference. He thought, of course they're going to. And we couldn't believe it, that they, people didn't really seem to know. That was really unexpected. The 25 people who received Dilaudid, their outcomes were exactly the same as the people who had diacetyl morphine. So that said to us, whoa, here's a drug that's a licensed medication, hydromorphone, and it seems to work as well as heroin. If we could find that hydromorphone did as well as heroin, that could make it available in a lot of countries where heroin is essentially a political non-starter. And that's when I uh, designed Salome. And mm. Salome came just because you know, we don't have the pharmaceutical grade heroin because everybody's closing our doors. So what options can we offer? The policymakers that are committed to make this happen need the evidence. As fast as I can get the evidence out, you know, this can roll into a treatment. If I am still a sense of urgency to get it done quickly. Oh, no fucking shit. So one day in the summer of twenty eleven. Ohenya meets up with drug users at Vandu. She wants to tell them about her new idea to compare heroin and hydromorphone. 
But she knows that many of the people in the community are still mad about how Naomi ended. I was expecting six people, and there were 60, 80 uh, people using drugs that came. And then someone asks the million-dollar question. What's going to happen to the participants of this new study when the trial is over? To tell you the truth, guys, I don't know. I will work very hard with everybody for this to continue. But I am not in a position to make any guarantees. And I said this to them. I had two options in front of me. Either do this study knowing that a six month I need to tell you to go back to the street or not doing the study. And I decided to do the study this way. I have no idea right now if that is the right decision. Picture the room. It's full of people who have used heroin for decades. People who've had to sell their bodies to get their fix. People who have lost their families. And people who have seen their friends die on the street. Ohenia has to tell them, I'd love to help all of you, but most of you aren't going to make it into my trial. When I tell them that I can only include a short number of people because this is super expensive, I want the minimum number that I need to have power for my calculations, not because I have a demonic agenda, it's because we don't have money and we need to get it done and get results as soon as possible. And they are tremendously supportive. Instead of being pissed off at me, they were, no, you know, don't worry, we will support you. You, you are doing the right thing. I was kind of like amazed of how generous they are. So generous. A few months later, Ohenya begins recruiting for Salome. Many of the old Naomi patients join. Kevin signs up, but Diane is still bitter, so she hesitates. Because I didn't know if the same thing would happen as Naomi. I wasn't positive that it wasn't going to go the same routine, so I was kind of leery. The researchers open a phone line. On the very last day of recruitment, Diane is with a drug user who's on the phone with the Salome researchers. As he's about to set the phone down, Diane says, wait. And I said, don't hang up. I want to talk. And I said I'd be on the study, and the next thing I know, they were telling me I was the first one on the study. What, what made you decide that, you know what, I am going to go on it? I don't know. It was just a spur of the moment. I'm going to try it again. Diane walks back into Crosstown Clinic, this time as a participant in the Salome trial. Salome is run by a new health authority, Providence Healthcare, and it has an entirely new nursing staff. I walked into the injection room and about eight nurses and students and whoever they were that were working there came and they were right in front of my face, just hanging over my head to watch me do it. It was kind of funny because all of us nurses were you know, interested in really, like, watching her inject. This is Julie Foreman. She is Salome's head nurse. We hadn't actually ever watched somebody inject drugs before, I don't think, for most of us. Um, and luckily, she was a good sport about it. I told him to back off, get away, you know, like, you can't do that. It was always a private thing for me, so when there were eight people watching me do it, I said, I can't do it, go away. And then we were all waiting for something to happen. <laughs> Nothing really happened. She didn't really change. She was this cheery woman, alert and vibrant when she walked in, and she was alert and vibrant when she left. And we were like, oh, okay. 
Diane stands up and walks away from the table. The nurses are excited that Salome is underway, so they start clapping. Do you remember how you felt when everybody started clapping? Nothing. It was their, their time to clap. It had nothing to do with me. Diane and a number of the drug users are worried. They don't want Salome to end just like Naomi did. But that is the researcher's plan. All they can promise is to transition everyone to methadone when Salome ends. You know, in, in our system of law, you, you can't just sue the government to say, give us a medical treatment. You know, there's not that basis uh, to do it, unfortunately. This is Scott Bernstein. He's a lawyer with Pivot. That's a social justice law firm that represents homeless people, drug users, and sex workers in the downtown east side. The Naomi patients take Scott on as their attorney, and they ask him to make sure that after Salome, they don't lose their heroin again. Scott sends a forceful letter to Providence Healthcare. So this is, this is June 14, 2012. The memo line says regarding the legal and ethical issues of human opiate trials. And so, so then I'm, I'm writing, can you imagine UBC, Providence Healthcare, and Vancouver Coastal Health and their researchers randomizing patients who had failed available therapies for breast cancer to two experimental treatments that would be halted after one year, even if proven effective? Scott bases the letter on an international agreement. Something called the Helsinki Declaration. They're not allowed. It's not allowed to take the medicine away. If a study drug works for a person, the government can't take it away from them. The Helsinki Declaration is basically the Magna Carta of medical research ethics. It says that if researchers can't continue an effective treatment after the trial has ended, they need to provide another appropriate treatment option. But Scott says that methadone isn't appropriate. Providence responds to Scott's letter, and they say legally the best we can do is methadone. So the participants think if they do that, maybe we should sue them. We'd all failed on methadone. And that's the only option we had. To sum it up, like, what the hell is going What are we doing? What are we doing here, folks? Like, how, how is this being remedied? I was happy to have that, that pressure and those ideas from, from the community. Dr. McDonald has an idea, but it's a long shot. It's something the researchers originally tried with Naomi. We started applying to Health Canada for, through the SAP, the Special Access Program for Compassionate Access to Diacetylmorphine. The Special Access Program allows doctors to prescribe unlicensed drugs to patients with life-threatening conditions. McDonald begins writing up just over 20 requests. They're thick files, over 150 pages, and he faxes them all over to Health Canada. They include the Naomi study results, the Swiss studies, and a detailed description of the patients past history of the of the patient, whether they've had overdoses requiring resuscitation with Narcan, have they been in jail, how many charges, how many uh, uh, related infections, Hep C, HIV, all, all of those things. So this, this dossier is just like a litany of personal tragedies? Like, that sounds like a difficult document to write. And that is what every single one would be like. Hmm. So I want to make sure I understand, like, it's not that your boss is breathing down your neck saying, put in, put all this work together, put these SAPs in, that's your job right now. This is like your leadership? Is that is that a fair characterization? I'm an advocate for my patients. They're participants in a study. If this is working, they need to have access to it. The only way to access it is through the SAP. So, uh, yeah, 
it was my, I, it was, it was my, partly my idea and force that made that happen. But I've worked in research studies before. This is just what you do. Somebody needs to believe in it. How did you show Health Canada that you and your team really believed in this? Well, we kept sending SAPs and didn't stop. <laughs> On September 20th, 2013, Health Canada calls and asks, is your fax machine broken? And I think we just had to put paper in the machine or something. So our our uh, uh, receptionist uh, clinic worker then was Sam. I said, Sam, we need to, we need to get some paper in the machine. <laughs> well, that, they didn't say anything, but I had an inkling that something, oh, something interesting is going to come through that fax. <laughs> one by one, the letters buzz in through the fax machine. Accepted, accepted, accepted. Every request is approved. This is the first time in North America that heroin is approved as a treatment for heroin addiction, not just in the context of a research study, but as a medical treatment. It was a, it was a big deal for us. We were very, very excited. Because it's acknowledgement that this is, Health Canada has put their stamp on uh, an injectable treatment option, diacetylmorphine, that, that yes, Health Canada approves that. Um, but then not much longer. That very morning. We are uh, here today to begin what I think is a much needed conversation about the need to focus on the treatment and recovery of those who are addicted to drugs. This is Rana Ambrose, Canada's Minister of Health. The same day the special requests are approved, Rana writes a statement to announce she is reversing the decision made by Health Canada, her own department. The Prime Minister and I do not believe we are serving the best interests of those addicted to drugs and those who need our help the most by giving them the very drugs they are addicted to. The answer, of course, is not to treat heroin addiction with heroin. That's, I hope, obvious to all of you. So today I am announcing that our government has taken action to close this loophole that we found in the Special Access Program. We reached out to Rana Ambrose for an interview, but she declined our requests. I really don't understand why they didn't. Just government procedure or whatever, whatever. I don't know. Their stupidity. That's what it was, stupidity. This is honestly stigma. Pure and simple. There are very few treatments on addiction, in the addiction field that have provided evidence like the Salome study has done. Ohenia says conservatives like Rana Ambrose and Stephen Harper they like to say, we shouldn't give people drugs. We should get them to stop taking drugs. We need to treat the root causes of their addiction. But the politicians don't actually have a plan. How would you do that? Well, for me to treat the root cause of the 202 Salome participants, I need an entire budget for Public Health Canada for two generations to heal for the cultural genocides, to heal for the child abuse that we see, to heal for the people that has been incarcerated over and over because they cannot stop using drugs in the street. So give me two generations of budget, and then maybe we can treat the root cause. Dr. Scott McDonald, Scott Bernstein, and a number of the drug users hold a press conference. They're going to sue the federal government to reverse Ambrose's decision. Dr. McDonald speaks to the pool of reporters. I need this tool in the addiction toolkit 
to help the people with this severe, life-threatening illness. As a human being, as a Canadian, as a doctor, I want to be able to offer this treatment to the people who need it. It is effective, it is safe, and it works. You're fighting the federal government in a very, very public battle. And you're at the center of it at that press conference. You're right center stage talking about your patients. You're, you're crying about this. Like, how did you feel about being there? I had a message to tell. Some of that message uh, is about hope and fighting despair. And that is an emotional message. And I did not want to get emotional. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, this is an evidence-based treatment. And if without it, some of my patients were going to die. And uh, you know, here is hope. Hope for these folks that have not had any anything to give them care for years. And it's taken away. Uh, that uh, I, I did get emotional. The drug users, the doctors, and the researchers are all gearing up for a big constitutional case. But it never happens. In 2016, Justin Trudeau replaces Stephen Harper as prime minister, and Trudeau's government quietly reverses Ambrose's decision. This leaves Crosstown Clinic exactly where it is today. McDonald reapplies for exemptions for each of his 91 heroin patients every six months. But the doctors, researchers, and drug users, they all wanted something bigger. They want a formal program with heroin clinics like Crosstown all over Canada. And even though Salome found hydromorphone is effective too, that hasn't happened either. In fact, very few politicians are pushing for expanding injectable treatment of any kind. Sometimes I feel right now, um, I am really like at the verge of, <laughs> I have been at the verge of losing my marbles many times. Uh, but at this time, we are the closest we have ever been of expanding treatment with injectables. I am so scared that somebody in a table that I don't sit is going to just review a piece of paper that somebody's just going to come and wipe it. It's an unusually cold winter here in Vancouver, and it's been snowing all day. I'm at a pop-up injection site, just like the one at the trailer that you heard at the beginning of our story. There are a handful of drug users huddled in the vestibule. They're here to warm up, and they're here to shoot up. This is the main needle depot in all of North America. They had more syringes out here than all of North America. Kevin works here full time now. His job today is to check people in as they show up at the site. Okay, just wait until he has a booth clean drip. How much do you usually do? Okay. Yeah, I quarter that purple stuff will drop you. Thank you, Jasmine. Kevin sees two or three overdoses pretty much every shift. 
sometimes more. And then on his lunch break, he walks six blocks over to Crosstown Clinic, where he takes his shot of clean prescription heroin. These are friends that I've been with for years, and they're still playing the roulette game that I'm not. And, you know, I'm the one that's, that's saving them. And... How, do you, how do you deal with that, knowing that you, you kind of lucked out and you don't have to be a part of all of that, but then all your friends do? It disgusts me, really. And I'm losing. I've lost more friends now in this year, in this crisis that's happened, than I have in the whole 25 years I've been down here. Could you do this job if you didn't, if you weren't in the Crosstown Clinic right now? Well, of course not. No, I'd be back probably on the street. Or actually, the bottom line is I'd probably be dead because the vent holes. I'd have been one of those statistics. Guarantee you that. Wouldn't be doing this interview, that's for sure. Okay, your table's ready. You got it, buddy. Down the block from Crosstown Clinic, Drug users hold a vigil to remember lost loved ones. This crisis has hit First Nations people the hardest. They light candles and place them at the base of a tall totem pole. It's called the Survivor's Pole. In April, officials in British Columbia declared the overdose crisis a public health emergency. Over 1,000 people have died since the start of 2016 and the crisis is showing no signs of slowing down. So I was waking up every morning, going to work, and I'd hear somebody else died, somebody else died, somebody else died. And you didn't have time to grieve. I would have been at a memorial every day. I just, I, I got, finally, I got tired of it, and I told Doc, I'm going home, where I don't have to hear ambulances all day. Deanne is all the way across the country now, back in Nova Scotia, together again with her family. And after 40 years of heroin addiction, she says she's completely heroin-free. She's not even on methadone. She's completely opiate-free. That would make her only one of two patients at Crosstown who's done that. This month, Crosstown Clinic is doing some renovations. They're knocking down a wall and expanding the pharmacy. This will let them squeeze in 30 more patients, maybe more. It won't be hard to fill those spots. Dr. McDonald says just about every day, a drug user will wander up and knock on the clinic's window, looking to get in. But for now, Crosstown is still an exclusive club.
That was The Heroin Clinic. It originally broadcast March 9th, 2017. The Heroin Clinic was produced by Gordon Caddock, Sam Fenn, Alex Kim, and Travis Lupik, with editing from Nancy Mullane. It was made in partnership with the Vancouver newspaper, The Georgia Strait, and the podcast, The Life of the Law. We'd like to thank Life of the Law for their support, as well as Dan Reist for academic mentorship, Josh GD for editorial input, as well as Laura Rode and Jen Liu for research and marketing help. If you want to hear more stories about the drug war, check out our other podcast, Crackdown. Recently, Crackdown made an episode commemorating longtime Vancouver drug user activist Dave Murray. Dave is pretty much the only reason this heroin clinic ever took off, and his story is chronicled in more detail on Crackdown. Dakota Coop is Cited's graphic designer, our production manager is David Tobias, and executive producers are Gordon Caddock and Sam Fenn. Cited is produced out of the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new original documentary next week.